We thank you that you indeed are Jesus, Son of God, Messiah. We thank you that your blood was shed on our behalf and that you came, you lived among us, you died having lived a sinless life. You are King of kings and Lord of lords, you are in charge. We turn our attention to your word now and ask that you'd guide us, for we need you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. I don't know if you've ever hit a point, a place in your life where you found you're complacent in your Christian walk. You just kind of end up coasting. I mean, you're a Christian, you would say you're following Christ, but you just kind of end up coasting in your Christian walk. You're not really on fire. If someone's approaching you about the gospel, you're not really eager to share it. Your own sin in your life, not really eager to see it dissolved, dealt with. You just kind of end up in this complacent moment. Or maybe you end up in this rebellious moment. You end up in this place of rebelliousness where you're just choosing not to follow God, where you're just choosing to sin, where you're choosing to do what you want any way you want. And sometimes you even are blinded by your own sin, unable to see your own rebelliousness. I remember a couple of months ago I was talking to a young man who uh, was struggling with uh, having sex with his a girlfriend prior to marriage, and uh, I said to him, are you planning it? Like, are you, are you wanting to have sex before marriage? He said, no, of course not. And I said, well, I said, are you buying condoms? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, if you're buying condoms, obviously you're planning to have sex with her. So it's premeditated. It's not just showing up and doing it. And he said, yeah, I, I'm buying condoms. And I said, then you're wanting to, like you're choosing to be rebellious. I mean, it's still rebellious if you're doing it outside of it, but you're just choosing to do it and predetermining to buy the condoms ahead of time. You're just choosing to do it. We can all end up there. We can all end up in places, our own sin can blind us, where we end up in places of either complacency or in places of rebellion. And in ending up in places of rebellion or complacency, we need God to awaken us to our sin. We need God to awaken us to what it means that he's holy. Derek did an outstanding job on preaching uh, on Ananias and Sapphira last week. Really appreciate his sermon. I listened to it uh, through the week. I was at Benbrook Baptist. That's the church I grew up in uh, last week preaching. And uh, Paul Havercroft is actually there today as our pastor is ill. So he's, he's there today preaching as well. And in my life, God's used a number of things to awaken me to himself again. Sometimes it's been conversations with people. Some friends of mine, I remember years ago, pointed out pride in my life. Three of them sat down with me and said, Dwayne, these are areas where we're sensing you're just being really arrogant and it's not honoring to God. And it really pointed to me. I, I love other messages. I love to go to one conference a year, which I haven't been able to do through COVID, where I'm not, I'm not on the docket. I'm not one of the preachers. Um, because even if the other preachers are preachers I love and appreciate, when you're one of the preachers in that room, it still feels very daunting that you have a message to share. And so I love to go somewhere where I have no responsibilities. I can just go and enjoy and take in God's word. And if you've ever gone with me to a conference, and numbers of you have, you know, I just sit there in anticipation of God's going to speak to me sometime this week. I don't know which message. I don't know when. Maybe a few messages. But I'm just here to take in what God's spirit wants to do through me. And I'm here to listen and to learn. Um, sometimes God awakens me because of other people's sin. I mean, if you listen to the podcast on the rise and the fall of Mars Hill, and you just kind of pray, God, not me. You just kind of pray, God, that's, that's not who I want to be. That's not how I want to lead. And sometimes through other people's sin, God awakens you. And so in the early church, the awakening was Ananias and Sapphira. 
The awakening was their sin and God striking them dead. I mean, their sin was one of greed. Uh, they, they were, their heart was full of greed, and because their heart was full of greed, they were willing to lie to the apostles and lie to the Holy Spirit about money. That's what this was all about. And they were willing to do so. And in their lying, God just kind of smote them. He, he struck them dead. And in doing so, great fear seized the whole community. And the whole community was like just taken aback by what God had done in that moment, taken aback by his judgment. And as they were all taken aback by God's judgment, I'm sure they began to wonder, is God's blessing still on us? I mean, is God's blessing still here? Can we be still blessed by God when Ananias and Sapphira, when this occurred to them in this way? Now, I want to say this at the onset. I, I don't know if Ananias and Sapphira were believers or not. The text is ambiguous about that. I will not be surprised if I see them in heaven one day because they lied to the Holy Spirit and in doing so, can a non-believer do so? Can a non-believer lie to the Spirit of God? I'm not even sure. But they clearly lied to the Holy Spirit and grieving the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to be surprised if this was God's discipline on believers for their rebelliousness in that day, and we see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven. I'll get to this at the end when we celebrate communion. So verse 12 of chapter 5, answering the question, is God's blessing still with us? Like, are we still God's people? The apostle performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord, and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. And crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So you have here in verse 12 this comment made by Luke that the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And so there's a number of signs and wonders that are performed, so much so that they even are bringing people so that if Peter's shadow falls on them, they're healed. I mean, that's the type of signs and wonders that are now being performed in the early church. It's astonishing. It's caught everybody off guard. The amount of power that God is demonstrating through the apostles, through these servants of his. Now, the shadow was seen as an extension of yourself. It was seen as part of you. And so this is probably very similar to when the lady, the woman, who had been bleeding for 12 years, reached out and touched the garment of Jesus and was healed. This isn't just something superstitious. They're believing that God has granted Peter such authority and power that even if his shadow falls on them, they can be healed. And so there's signs and wonders in the early church. Throughout biblical history, there are seasons of signs and wonders. You see it where God actually ramps up the signs and wonders. I talked about this a few weeks ago, but through his working on the world, in the world. I mean, obviously, in the beginning of the creation order, but then after that, you have the Exodus, the 10 plagues, God leading his people out to Sinai, the splitting of the Red Sea, God leading his people with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. You have God feeding them with manna, and cooking cookies, they weren't cookies, in heaven and providing them for the people. But you have the miraculous moments of the Exodus. Then in the time of the kings, you have 
very little miraculous except for Elijah and Elijah. You have a couple of moments of Elijah and Elijah there. In the prophets, you have whole prophetic word where there's no miraculous, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or others, but some, obviously like Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the lion's den, Daniel's vision, Daniel, uh, sorry, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, you have moments of that in the prophetic word. Jonah, obviously, that big fish, that's a miraculous story. And so you have moments of that, but you have whole parts of the prophetic writings, large parts of them, where there's nothing miraculous. Then the time of Christ, whether it be his birth, where you see numbers of miracles in his birth, his life, where he's performing number of miracles, death and resurrection, after his resurrection, and then in the days of the apostles, you see these miraculous moments where God grants miracles through history. But there's large parts of the biblical story where there are no miracles. There are none. They simply don't exist. And so then you may ask yourself, like, what are these miracles for? Why, why does God grant them? I'll get to that in a few moments. So God demonstrates that his blessings, or his blessings still rest on his people as they gather. And note they gather. It's part of verse 12. They met together in Solomon's colonnade. We don't know where that is exactly. It's likely the east gate of the temple. So there's the temple, there's the outer court where people could gather, anyone could gather, and there's the east gate. Likely there they're gathering. And so these believers are gathering, and they're gathering frequently. Now, how are they gathering? Well, they're gathering in accordance to Acts chapter 2, where we've already read they gather for the apostles' teaching, for fellowship, for breaking of bread, for prayer, and they're sharing the possessions that God has given them with each other. So they're gathering for the apostles' teaching. They're gathering for prayer. They're gathering for fellowship. They're gathering for the breaking of bread, which we'll do later this morning. And in that, they're also gathering for the sharing of possessions with each other. And so God assures them of his blessing. He shows them powerfully through signs and wonders that his blessing is still among them. And they continue to gather. Now note verse 13 and 14. But no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. The people respected them, but they were terrified to join them. Now note the contrast in verse 14. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So how do you put those two verses together? That no one wanted to be with them, and yet more and more believed and were added to their number. Well, the truth of the gospel being proclaimed, accompanied by the miraculous signs, caused some to believe while others stayed away, possibly for fear of either persecution or God's judgment. And so you have here these two reasons that are given. The one is, some of them are like, whoa, did you hear what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? Did you hear about God's judgment on them? Like, whew, this isn't a God you want to follow. This isn't a God you want to be with. I mean, he takes holiness seriously. He takes following him seriously. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira were just struck dead for a bit of lying. And people are probably terrified. And so no one wants to join them. No one wants to kind of come near them. They're like, let's, let's just stay away from that. That's something we don't want to be a part of. In, in the last year or so, I've experienced something in my ministry that I would say is unprecedented in my other uh, 26 years of ministry. I just started my 27th year of ministry here. And, and in the time I've been here, I've never experienced this revival-like moment like we have amongst the Koran, where we've baptized 12 of them in this last year with more of them to come, and many of them have turned from sin and turned to Christ. And of course, there's been struggle in that, but true repentance has come and true belief in Christ. And not only that, but longing to see 
brothers and sisters in the Quran community come to faith in Christ and them calling each other to be able to, to, uh, uh, to come to repentance. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to one of the young men who, who's been around just a bit, and I was asking him where he was at when all this. And he was like, oh, man, it's been powerful to see God work in all of my friends' lives, but I don't want it. I'm like, what? He says, well, I know what it takes to be a Christian now. Like, I know what it takes to actually follow him. I know what it means to actually walk with him, and I don't, I don't want that. Like, there's still stuff I want to do. There's still things I want to experience. I know God has said is outside of his word, and I don't, I don't want anything to do with this. Like, I, I, I don't want to be under God's judgment. I'm like, buddy, you're under God's judgment now, just so you know. I know that that doesn't sound like a happy pastoral moment, but that's what I said. And, and yet that's what happens. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised that some people were like, we want nothing to do with this. We, we don't want to go near this. I mean, in John 6, after Jesus has just been teaching about the ways of the kingdom and what it means to follow him, what's it say? John 6, 66. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I mean, people walked away from Jesus. They're like, this is too hard. We don't want to believe in this. What you're saying is too difficult. People walked away from the apostles. Of course they're going to walk away from us. Of course there's going to be people that are going to say, I don't want to join you. I mean, I like that you put housing in. I like that you did this or that or the other, whatever it is, but I, I don't want to join you. I mean, in the last three months, we have watched God provide $1.7 million towards our mortgage debt. And when I tell that story to people of God's miraculous provision, I and mean, we were praying, God, would you provide in a way that everyone could say, only you did this? That it wasn't just about some type of human fundraising effort, although we know we need to have our role, but God, only you could do this. I mean, I mean, in fact, there's still some money coming in. It's possible, Paul said to me this week, that we could be down to a million-dollar interest-free mortgage in three or four weeks. We may be a bit more than that. We may be at 1.1 million, so don't, don't quote me on that. But when I tell people this story, when I tell other Christians this story, people who have been in ministry for 50 years or so, they've served the Lord their whole lives, you're like, Dwayne, this is nothing short of miraculous. I've had, I've had some of my POAC friends tell me that, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, who are like, Dwayne, this is nothing short of the miraculous hand of God to do what he's done in such short order. And yet I've told this story to some of my non-Christian friends who are like, man, wow, it really seems like God is with you, but I want nothing to do with that. It really seems like God's there, but I want nothing to do with that. Like, that's pretty amazing, like, that that happened. Some of them even attributing it to a God that they may not believe in, but they want nothing to do with it. So it shouldn't surprise us that at times God's going to show up and even show up powerfully, even show up miraculously. And people are going to say, but not for me. Not for me. That's not what I want. And maybe that's one of the reasons people are staying away. But maybe another reason is for persecution. They fear persecution. I mean, they've already seen John and Peter persecuted for their faith in prison. And some people are saying, man, I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my livelihood. I don't want to be ostracized. I don't want to be imprisoned. And so they don't want to join them. They dare not to join them. And so there's a group that just choose to stay away. It's reminiscent of when Jesus frees the demoniac in the Gospel of Mark. When he frees the demoniac and the, the, the demons end up in the pigs, the pigs end up going over the cliff, and the man is now sitting there in his right mind. It's a, it's a contrast. It's an incredible contrast that he offers. And, and this man now, who they know, who was uncontrollable, who was, who was superhumanly strong, who could break chains and was hovering 
in the graveyards. This man now is clothed in his right mind and dressed. The text says that, and then immediately after it says, and they begged Jesus to leave. Some people just don't want any part of it. Either for the fear of persecution or the fear of how holy God actually is. But then there's another group, verse 14, where more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to the number. So what it likely means is something like this is they didn't have a big crowd in the sense of a group of people that were just coming to check out Christianity. They heard the gospel proclaimed. They knew what it meant to believe in him. And they went, okay, if we're getting into this, this is serious. This is serious in the way these people follow Jesus. They're willing to be persecuted. This is serious in the way they take their faith. They're being called to an obedience of what God has asked them to. And yet there's a people who've realized that everything they've believed in, everything they've hoped in, everything they've trusted in has ended up for naught, and they end up turning and believing in Christ. They end up turning from their sin and turning to Christ, and they end up believing in him. That's the contrast that Luke's offering here. That even though people revered them, even though people respected them, people were still like kind of hands, arms length. Except for a group of people where God's spirit was at work, and they repented of sin, and they trusted in Christ. They turned to him to believe in him. Saying, this is who we need. This is what we need. And they trust him. And so the Lord continues to add to those number those that are doing that. So when it comes to the miraculous, when it comes to us understanding God showing his favor through the miraculous, how do we understand the miraculous? What do we do? Well, I'd like to offer this as a, one of the most helpful teaching tools, I think, in Scripture. When it comes to a parable that Jesus is telling, he's telling the parable of a rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was the beggar who was at the rich man's gate. The rich man is in hell. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man begs Abraham to allow Lazarus to dip his hand in some water and just quench his tongue from the torment he's experiencing. Abraham says, no, we, we can't do that. And then, and then the rich man, and it's ironic, it's the only parable in Scripture where the name of a person is given. And I believe it's given purposely by Jesus because the rich man would have been known. He was powerful. Everyone would have known his name. No one would have known Lazarus' name. No one. And Lazarus is named. And Jesus is showing a contrast in how his kingdom works and how the poor will be honored. So then the rich man says, well, would you at least let Lazarus rise back to life again and go and tell my family? Because if they see that someone has risen to life again, they will believe. And this is the answer that Jesus explains through his parable. He answered, this is, this is the rich man. I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, the rich man said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. If someone rises to life again, if someone comes back to the grave, if someone that they know has been this dead shows up, they will repent. Note what Jesus says in the parable. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What's he saying? God's word is powerful. God's word is living and active. God's word is miraculous. Greater than any miracle or attestation of such 
is the power of God's word. Do you believe that? God's word is more powerful in the convicting of sin and in bringing people to faith in Christ even than if someone who died five weeks ago came back to life again, a believer, and appeared to your friends and family and said, believe in Jesus. Do you believe that? That's what Jesus says, isn't it? God's word, the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, the word of God. This wasn't even the full comprehensive word of God. The word of God is more powerful in its miraculous intervention in the lives of human beings than even if someone were to rise to life again and declare the gospel. Now, most of us don't live that way. We don't believe that the gospel is that powerful in our conversation with non-Christians, that the gospel is that powerful in our culture today as we see our culture sliding further and further away from Christ. And we don't believe that because we're not meditating on it and then we're not sharing it with others. Oh, that we would be people that are students of the word in such a way that when we're in conversation with someone, we'd be asking God with non-believers to bring scripture to us so that as we're in conversation, we can appropriately share those scriptures because God's word is living and active. It will not return to him void. Is that not good news? And he's given us his word. We have it. We have his word comprehensively and completely, fully so that we have the ability, because God's Spirit is in us, to take his word and to declare it to others. Humbly, lovingly, graciously, but unapologetically because it's God's word to us. Do you believe that that's true? We need to start to live that out. Jesus makes that really clear in the parable. Man, I don't, know. We don't, I don't know how long. I can't remember if it says in the parable. I don't think it does. But even if Lazarus were to rise to life again and declare the gospel, that is not as powerful a witness as Moses and the prophets. We now have the full counsel of the word of God to declare. Verse 15. So as a result... People brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might follow them as they passed by. And crowds also gathered from towns and around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits and all of them were healed. You see, God's kingdom comes not only as people turn from whatever they have believed in previously to believe in Christ, but also as God powerfully frees those who've been enslaved by the afflictions of sin and illness and the control of the prince of the world and his demonic minions. What's healing? Healing is God restoring and redeeming his created order to his intended design. Healing is God restoring and redeeming God's created order or his created order to his intended design. You know in the, in, in, in the new heaven and new earth, there'll be no cancer. Is that not good news? There'll be no heart attack. There'll be no disease of any kind. COVID will be gone. Is that not great news? In, in the new world order, new heaven and new earth, none of that will be there. It'll be as God always intended, as God always intended. And obviously, I believe that God can still choose at times to grant people gifts of healing and allow people to be healed. But it's always in support of what the Word says. It never supplants the Word. It's always in support of the Word. One of the things I've been blessed in being an elder at our church is that since since the time I first came here and before my time, the elders of this church have always believed in anointing people with oil and praying for them. 
and we've done so. Through COVID, we've done so at least twice, it may have been more than twice, that we've gone to people's homes at their request. That's what James tells us, right? The gospel, the gospel. The book of James, chapter 5, that if you're sick, you call on the elders. They'll come and anoint you and pray with you. And we've done it a number of times. Often, Paul leads us in these, in these times. And there's at least a couple of occasions in this. I mean, there are times where we have not seen miraculous healings. I, I mean, we prayed for Julia Bear faithfully. We anointed with oil, and God called her home into his presence. But there are times over my history here where we have prayed for God's healing on people. We've anointed with oil. Some of this goes back more than 10, 12, 13 years, and some of it's, again, more recent, um, where people have told us after that God has healed them that they've been free from whatever was ailing them, and they now believe that God has fully healed them. And for some of these people, it's lasted longer than a decade, this healing. And they've said they've experienced that kind of healing in that moment, because I believe that God still chooses at times to heal people, miraculously. At times through the gift of healing, at times through the anointing of elders. But it's always, always in support of the Word of God. The Word of God is the, is the miracle that we are to that we are to constantly be coming to. And God will at times choose to authenticate his work in miraculous ways of healing. And so he does this here. Peter, to such an extent that if his shadow is falling on people, they're healed. But then he also frees people from demonization. Those that are being tormented by impure spirits are coming to be healed. And again, what is the freeing of people from demonization? Well, it's, it's the redeeming and restoring of God's created order and his attention what his intention was. I mean, when Satan fell and a third of the angelic realm fell with him, they were granted a heap of rain on the planet. In fact, in Ephesians, he's called the prince of the air of this world. That's what Satan's called. And one day he will be vanquished into the lake of burning sulfur. Is that not good news? In fact, God offers no provision of salvation for the demonic, none whatsoever. He doesn't grant them any provision for the demonic in terms of salvation. Doesn't grant it. Now, we need to be so cautious as we come into this. This, this summer, um, we won't finish Acts till the end of July. Then in August, we'll do a short series. And then between Labor Day and, and uh, Thanksgiving, I'm going to preach a sermon series on spiritual warfare. I've done it about three times here previously, but I think the last time I did it was like 12 years ago. So most most of you don't remember it. A handful of you in the room would, but most of you don't. And I want to walk through what it looks like because so often we become so confused when it comes to understanding the demonic and spiritual warfare. Let me give a couple of examples. So many people will tell me that Satan is the one that's attacking them. He likely isn't. He likely isn't. Um, Satan can only be in one place at one time. Doesn't mean it's not demonic. Legion of demons at his aid, but Satan can only be in one place at one time. He is a created being. And when you say he's everywhere, you're giving him God-like characteristics. Only God is all present. Only God. Not Satan. Satan as a fallen angelic being. People will talk to me about the fact that Satan can read their minds. I don't believe that's true. There's no indication anywhere in scripture that Satan can read your minds. Then people will say to me, well, Dwayne, then how does he know what I'm doing? I said, well, let me give some examples. Let's say some of the enemy's minions are watching you flip through your phone. And they're watching you look at pornography. They don't need to read your mind to know that you lust like that. They can see you do it. Then, then they watch your spending habits. They see that you don't honor God with your wealth and that you're greedy. They, they know your weakness there. They, they see your text to people 
as you text them in anger or bitterness or resentment, so they see the resentment, they see the bitterness, they see the anger, and they know they can use that against you. I mean, Satan doesn't need to read our minds to know a lot about us, does he? He can just see in what we do, in what we text, and what we say all the time. And his minions see that, and they use that against us. So we need to be so careful as we talk about the enemy that we never ascribe to him more power than the Bible does. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that he's not powerful. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have influence. It doesn't mean that he doesn't tempt us. All those things are true. But Christ victoriously triumphed over Satan on the cross. Is that not good news? He made public spectacle of them, Colossians tells us. That's how powerful Jesus is. He defeated them, completely defeated them. So then I wonder in our day, with where our culture is headed, God, as we continue to faithfully declare your word, which is living and active and will not return to you void, as we continue to faithfully declare the gospel unashamedly, wisely, and boldly, God, is it a day where, again, you will show up to authenticate your presence among your believers in a miraculous hand, with a miraculous hand? I don't know. I don't know. But I've wondered it. I begin to wonder as we're preaching to the book of Acts if that's something that God will do. Because more and more as I am studying and trying to understand our culture and studying and trying to understand what God's doing, our culture is moving further and further and further and further away from our God. So I've been using our elliptical like five to six mornings a week. I know it doesn't look like it yet. Hopefully it will soon. I started at like 15 minutes, went up to 20, now to half an hour. And it's partly because I've been unable to run with my sciatica. I just haven't been able to get back to running yet. And I've tried, and I, I run with excruciating pain. And I got back in, I, I never got back into it. I started to cycle more. And so I'm on our elliptical all the time. I didn't use it as much before because I ran most mornings. And um, when I would run, I, would, I, I don't like to run with anything blocking my concentration because I'd spend the whole time running praying. I wouldn't put, you know, uh, AirPods in and listen to something. But when I'm on the elliptical, it's a little boring, to be honest. So I, our, our TV's a smart TV in the basement now because the other TV got busted won't explain that story. It just got busted, and it wasn't me. And, um, and you can't just bust a TV by looking at it. That's all I'll say. <laughs> TV's destroyed. Come home one day, just destroyed. And so, and so we had to buy a new one a few months ago. And so this one, I can go on to everything, right? So I flip onto YouTube, and I'm watching TED Talks, or I'm flipping on and, and listening to podcasts. And I've tried to listen to some of those popular ones to try to hear what the culture's saying about things. And so one of them is by Jim Holt, almost 10 million views, right? On, on how the universe exists. And he starts off in his TED Talk making fun of anyone who believes that God could create a universe. And he says, if you believe that, maybe God made you know, the universe because God was tired of contemplating why he existed, couldn't answer that question himself. I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? Couldn't answer that question himself. And so then God just chose to create um, so, that, so that he didn't have to worry about how he got there anymore. I'm like, what? And then he gets into Stephen Hawking's arguments about uh, or, or theories on nothing being able to create something, and he makes fun of that and has everybody laugh and, and uh, talks about how nothing, so God couldn't do it, nothing couldn't do it, and then he grants his theory. I want you to listen to this carefully. This is his theory on the mystery of the universe of our existence, the mystery of our existence. The resolution to the mystery of existence is that the reality we exist in is one of the possible generic realities because reality has to turn out some way. That's it. Reality has to turn out some way. This is the way it turned out. 
I'll keep going. It could either turn out to be nothing or everything. Now, when he says everything, he's talking about a completely full universe or something in between. So if it has a special feature, like being really eloquent, that's where he talks about the fine-tuning of the universe, or he talks about, um, um, in his talk, the, the, some of the constants, the universal constants in the universe that can't alter or the universe would fall apart. He says, if being really eloquent or really full, if that was a special feature, well, that would require an explanation. If that's what our universe would like, he said it would require an explanation. But if it's just one of these random, generic realities, there's no further explanation for it. That's what science is telling us. I'm like, what? I mean, standing ovation, one of, the, one of the most watched TED Talks of all time. And what does he say? Ha, 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 God couldn't do it. Nothing could do it. And then he basically says, I think we live in a multiverse with three Spider-Men. No, he doesn't say three Spider-Men, Right? And ours is just kind of this common, average, everyday universe, which means we don't ever need to give an explanation for it. There's no need for explanation because it just exists because it does. And I'm like, that's your answer? That's your answer. And that's what everybody's applauding. Why? Because we don't want God to exist. We don't want someone that we're accountable to. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Why? Why? Because they don't want there to be God. So that when they look out on the universe, they can't explain its existence except that God did it. They say there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. When they see the fine-tuning of the universe and have no explanation for it except by a designer, they cry out there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. When they see the constant of the universe and the fact that any one of them changing by just a minutia, like the gravitational pull being altered, seems to have no explanation within it except that there be a fine tuner, there be someone who's granted these constants, they cry out, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, simply because they don't want there to be one. Now that shouldn't surprise us because Psalm 14 or 53, they both say, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. It's quoted twice in the Psalms. Because the scripture is very clear that we are also the fools until God saves us. It's not them against us, it's us. And God's grace chooses to save. And so we cry out to God, oh God, would you save? Oh God, would you save my friends? Oh God, would you save my family? Oh God, would you save our culture? Oh God, would you work? Oh God, would you re- God, what if you saved our prime minister? What if you saved our premier? What if you saved our counselors, our city counselors? God, what if you saved? And so we continue to declare the gospel. We continue to take what God has said and let others know that he said it. And God may choose in those moments to offer some type of miraculous intervention as we proclaim the word. And even if he chooses to do that, like the days of Jesus and the days of the apostles, Some will still say, I want nothing to do with that. And others will turn and believe. And so we're going to transition to a time where we celebrate communion, where we take a moment, we celebrate what God has done for us in Christ, in communion. And as I do that, I told you I'd bring around Ananias and Sapphira. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, The word of God says this, verse 1. For in these following directives I have no praise for you, 
for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. To some extent, I believe it. And I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sitting against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why a number of you are weak and sick and a number of you have died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, we are judged in this way by the Lord, or when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Scripture tells us to examine ourselves. And it says not to take communion in an unworthy way. Let me offer at least three ways in which you take communion in an unworthy way. The one is in the verses themselves where it says, if there's division between you and someone else. Now, division isn't just disagreement or difference of opinion. It's actually not wanting or breaking a fellowship, not wanting fellowship or breaking a fellowship with someone. And the Bible says if that's you, if, if you've broken fellowship with someone and you've broken fellowship over COVID regulations, over differences of opinion, not, we're not talking sound doctrine and heresy here. We're just talking around some of these issues. The Bible says that before you take this cup and eat this bread, you need to be reconciled. You need to be reconciled. Now, sometimes you've done everything on your end to reconcile, and the other person isn't willing to reconcile, and I think you leave that between them and God if you've made attempts. But the second reason you don't take it, I believe, is if there's unrepentant sin when you examine yourself. God, is there sin in my life that I'm just not willing to give up? And so whenever I take communion, I know I talk about this every time, not usually to this length, but every time I'm like, okay, God, Spirit of God, you're in me. Search me. What, what's in me that I need to repent of? I mean, is this a day where I shouldn't be taking this cup? Or I shouldn't be taking this bread? And the last reason you wouldn't take it is if you're not a believer. You let it pass by. I mean, in this case, you don't take it from the table. But can I offer three small solutions? Jesus died to bring his people together to grant them unity. It's glorious and it's beautiful, and he does it. And even today, you can go to someone that you're divided over and that you may not still agree with on the issues, but you can go to them and say, would you forgive me? I've allowed our difference of opinion to cause division in our fellowship or a break in our fellowship, and that was sinful for me. Would you forgive me? And the answer of that brother or sister should be yes. It may not be, but it should be. Oh, the next two are gloriously good. That if you have unrepentant sin in your life whenever you're taking communion, and the Holy Spirit brings that to your mind, to your attention, and you come to him in that moment and say, yeah, God, it's pornography. Yeah, God, it's my greed. Yeah, God, it's my bitterness. Yeah, God, it's my pride. You know what the Lord does? He forgives. He restores your relationship with him. Is that not good news? Never, ever, ever has anyone turned to him for forgiveness and God said, go away. He's never done it. 
Whenever anyone comes to him looking for that type of forgiveness, looking for that type of restoration relationship, God loves to restore his children to full relationship with himself. Or maybe you're sitting here today and you're not a believer and you're like, man, that's me. Today, even today, you can turn to him. Today, even today, you can say, God, I'm repenting of my sin. I need to turn from the things I believed in to turn to you, Lord Jesus. Jesus, would you save me? And the good news again there is God never turns anyone away. Anyone who ever comes to him for salvation, God gloriously saves. So even this morning, as we've gathered as God's people, we can be united. We can experience forgiveness, either as a Christian who's been walking in rebellion or as a non-believer who hasn't yet experienced the saving love and knowledge of Jesus. Jason, you guys can come up. But if that's not where you're at today, I'd ask you to do this. Would you take this home with you? And would you put it somewhere prominent? Would you put it somewhere where you can see it every day? And if there's division between you and someone else, you're not the place where you can go to them to be united. Would you put it where you can see it every day and pray that God would grant you unity and grant you the courage to go to them? If there's unrepentant sin in your life that you just know you're not willing to let go of yet, would you put it there every day asking God to bring you to a place where you'd hate that sin and love him? Or you'd repent of that sin to trust him? Or you'd turn from that sin? And if you're not a believer, would you put that in a place where you could see it every day and say, God, would this be the day that you would save me? God, would this be the day that you'd reveal yourself to me until you turn to faith in Christ? And then on that day, would you open this up and take that piece of bread to remind you of the body of Christ broken for you and drink this cup to remind you that his blood was shed? Now, if it's 10 years from now, you might want to get a fresh glass of juice and some fresh bread. And I'm praying that as God's Spirit works in you, it will be much sooner. So now we're going to celebrate this table. We're going to celebrate the table, and through the first song, I'm going to ask you to just take a few moments and examine yourself. God, is there any division? Is there any unrepentant sin? God, do I know you? And, and, and if you come to the place where you go, I mean, many people took it in the first service. I didn't look around the room, to be honest, but I just know there was a lot of empty containers after us. So I'm assuming that means they took it and didn't just dump it. If you come to that point where you say, yeah, God, as far as I know, there's no division between other people. God, God, I, I am coming to you with a heart that says, any sin you bring to mind, I'm willing to repent of, God, because you're my Savior and my Lord, and I love you. And I can't walk with you perfectly, but God, I'm walking with you honestly. And, and, and then thirdly, you know that you're a believer. Then I, I invite you to celebrate Jesus today. I invite you to open up this top and remember that his body was broken for you, to open up the bottom and drink a juice that reminds us that his blood was shed for us, to remind us that any time, anywhere, any place, at any moment, he can save, he can restore, and he can unite because he is a good God. And he loves to work in our midst. Would you pray with me? We thank you for this reminder today, God, and even this reminder as we examine ourselves, and, and the text is so clear that some in that day and over the years have been sick and even died like Ananias and Sapphira because they chose to take this table in an unworthy manner God, that can strike fear into our midst, and yet we're thankful for grace. So in these moments, would you remind us of grace? In these moments, if you're directing us to an area where we need to go to someone for their forgiveness, God, may you grant us grace. If there's sin in our life that's just been beating us down, may you grant us grace. And if today, God, we're here and we can confess that we don't know you, may you grant us grace. 
And so, God, we pray your blessing on us as we celebrate this piece of bread that reminds us of your body broken, this juice that reminds us of your blood shed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you didn't pick up a communion cup, they're available on the table, and you're welcome to do so um, as we sing this song together. Would you remain seated as we sing and examine our hearts before the Lord?